At this point, every information portal is saturated with mindfulness content. But this show is a unique, unusual, curious take on mindfulness. Some of what you hear will be completely new to you. Let's dive in and take a look at the nature of the aware mind. I invite you to deepen your awareness so that you may be liberated and inspired. I'm Sarah Vallely, professional coach. I help people overcome anxiety, heal from past trauma, improve their relationships, and maintain better work-life balance. I am here with Melanie Haskell today. She is our guest, and she is a business executive in general management, marketing, and operations, working in nonprofit, real estate, and media, and she has experience coaching with Enneagram. So that's what we're going to talk about today is Enneagram. We're also going to talk about how that overlaps with mindfulness and how Enneagram can actually help us be more mindful. Hi, how are you doing, Melanie? Great. Thanks, Sarah. I'm such a huge fan of your podcast and really happy to be here. (laughs) So glad you're here. Here's the story. I heard about Enneagram several years ago. I had some friends who were learning about it in therapy. And then I went, I think I might have taken the online test and but I never really got into it. And then just a few months ago, you and I were actually talking about it. I've been listening to some podcasts. I have been reading about it online. I've been trying to type myself and I'm absolutely obsessed with Enneagram right now. I want to explain TSD mindfulness, which is a type of mindfulness that I've created that I teach. In TSD mindfulness, we focus on the inner experience, which any type of mindfulness, of course, you're going to do that. But what's a little bit different with TSD mindfulness is that we work with three fields. One is the logical mental field. The other is the gut nervous system field. And the third is the heart where the deep emotions are. TSD actually stands for tame the mind, soothe the gut, and dwell in the heart. We also talk about something called rhythmic energies. And rhythmic energies are in the heart. And when we're in meditation and we've quieted the mind and we've soothed our gut and we're really dwelling in our heart, we notice these rhythmic energies. And what these rhythmic energies are, are our driving force. They're what drives us for better or for worse. And so we become aware of these and really understand on a deeper level who we are and what drives us. That's my description of TSD mindfulness. Why do you think I'm all of a sudden so obsessed with Enneagram? Oh, I'm so happy to hear you say that too. I think absolutely in hearing that description and knowing what I know about your work and your mindfulness, I think there's a ton of overlap and some interesting concepts here to dive deeper into. Enneagram is a personality typing tool. There are many out there. This one is quite old. It's rooted in ancient knowledge traditions. It's been around since about 330 AD, I think. It's really rooted in in some of these ancient traditions and things that, that you, you write like mindfulness and people have known for a long time. The word itself, Enneagram, right, means a nine-sided figure. It comes from a Greek word. The figure that we're talking about here is a circle. There's nine types, numbers one through nine. They're next to each other on the circle as you go around. What I find about the Enneagram and why I love it so much, it's such a great tool among the personality typing tools that I've been exposed to that really help us understand our motivations, what drives us, some of our strengths, of course, also pitfalls, how we can be our at our best, most present. Because with Enneagram, one of the things I love, it doesn't pigeonhole you. It doesn't say 
you act this way because you are this type. It says this is your home base. This is what you have most at your core. But when you're at your best, when you're present, you have access to the best of most of the types or all of the types. When we're stuck in our personality and gripped by it, that's when some of those pitfalls start to come out. What I loved hearing you say was about the TSD model and how that lines up because these instinctive centers or triads, and there's the heart, there's the gut, and there's the head. The vocabulary definition of Enneagram. Uh, the first thing I want to say is it's not plural. I remember you and I were texting and I was saying Enneagrams and you texted back, you said it's not plural. <laughs> so, because it's, so talk to us about that. Cause I think a lot of us do that. We say Enneagrams instead of Enneagram. Common misunderstanding, not a big deal at all. I would say because again, the root of the word, it means nine sided figure. So the word Enneagram refers to the diagram, which is a circle with nine types within it and they're connected. Nine sections, which probably section isn't the right word, but those would be called the nine types in the figure. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. Uh, and you had mentioned the instinctive centers and you had mentioned that there's the heart, uh, the gut and the, the head, the head, the head mm -hmm. right. Uh, anything else you want to share with us about the instinctive centers? They're called centers or triads. So because there's nine types. Each of those centers contains three of the types that are next to each other on the circle. So they're not just picking three from any part of the circle. They're next to each other. So, so that's how that works. Typing is a term that we use to find out which of the nine types you are. What, what can you tell us about typing? Well, I would say it's interesting. So maybe because people are used to a lot of different personality tools out there, they think with Enneagram, I should be able to go out there, take the test, and it tells me my type for sure. And that's not really how it works with Enneagrams. When you take an assessment, it's an indicator assessment, it indicates to you based on your responses, the, these are your most likely types, right? Maybe it's your, your top one, two, threes, and maybe it'll even give you scores that say, you know, this is how likely it is to be your type. It's all about what motivates you, what drives you, what's internal. It's not about what behaviors you display. We can all display similar or the same behaviors for different reasons. Really, what you have to do is take those top few types that are indicated, go read, listen, learn about it, and really understand what resonates with you and what sounds right, what sounds like your core, your home base. And we all only have one core or home base type. Some of the types are type five is the investigator, type six is the loyalist, type seven is the enthusiast, type eight is the challenger, type nine is the peacemaker, type one is the reformer, type two is the helper, type three is the achiever, and type four is the individualist. There's three types in each of these instinctive centers. So the head has the type five, type six, and type seven. And the body or the gut has type eight, type nine, and type one. And then the heart has type two, type three, and type four. And from what I understand, as far as these instinctive centers, is the types that are in the the head center, there's a lot of reliance on your thinking, you know, your big deep thinkers. If your type falls into the gut category. You might on some level be driven by some fear. It might be some trying to preserve things, trying to keep things safe. If your type falls in the, the heart center, uh, there might be an emotional component. Am I right about this? 
Yeah, absolutely. And actually, there is a core emotion that does tend to go with each of the instinctive centers. Fear is the core emotion of the head center, and anger is the emotion for the body. And how about the heart? What would be the core emotion there? Love, I think. Okay. Fascinating. So I've been trying to type myself, and I've been texting Melanie and saying, what do you think? Do you think I miss that? And if anybody wants to type themselves, they might go online and, and find a test and take that. And like you were saying, that's just an indicator. And I'll tell you, for me, for my personal experience, I did take one of those tests. And there's two types that I think I might be. One of them what didn't even come up on the test for me. When I took the test, there were about three that came up that's like, these are the three possible ones you might be. But one of the ones that I think I might be was not even came up on there. So so I guess take those tests with a grain of salt, but it sounds like we can really learn about these nine different types and compare them to who we are and what drives us to, to help us understand. So, so lead me through this. What should I do? If we can start with maybe a type that showed up high for you or that you said there's two types that you know think are if you want to choose one and I can maybe go through a little bit of an overview of that type and then we can talk a little bit about what sound, you know, what resonates with you. Yeah. Okay. The first one is five, the investigator, and that is one of the head types. Type fives are really motivated by gaining knowledge and data, being self-sufficient, capable and competent, having enough space to process and avoiding depleting their energy. Some of the strengths of a type five is that they're great at searching, asking questions, diving in in depth. They can be analytical, innovative. Some of the pitfalls of a five, again, when we're not at our most present, maybe when we're under stress or um, just on autopilot, they can be a little self-isolating. They can push others away. They can detach from emotions and go into their thoughts in that head center. They can sort of have this push and not wanting to get too entangled with others' emotions. A lot of this is driven by, again, that idea of sort of scarcity, depleting energy, wanting to maintain their resources. Because five sometimes can see connection with others and relationship with others as a little bit depleting to their energy. A lot of times they need time to go away by themselves to process. Maybe that takes a few minutes, maybe months, maybe years to process some of that. And they do that independently. Some fives report maybe that they have a feeling that they don't have an ability to do things as well as others, or maybe they feel a little bit weird or like they don't fit in or they're socially awkward. Some of the myths about a five might be that they say they could be perceived as maybe aloof or arrogant. There can be a myth that they don't have feelings, but that's not true at all. Another myth can be that they only want to be alone, that they don't want to connect with others. And I think that's really not true. Fives have a really deep desire to connect with others, but maybe they feel like there's some things preventing them from being able to to do that well. Everything you said describes me. And there's not one thing that you said that I was like, no, that's not me. Especially the avoiding depleting energy. Like that is something I think about. The worst thing you can do when you're maybe out on a blind date with a with a five is order dessert. They need to get home. <laughs> so they true. need to have that time to process. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, I, I got to go. I mean, I have friends that'll go on like five hour first dates. I'm like, how can you like, there's no way I would like explode. I wouldn't be able to do it. Yeah, I think some people do think I'm aloof or arrogant sometimes because I'm just kind of like, I don't know, sometimes I just am quiet in certain situations or have to leave. Some people say like, oh, maybe I'm a five. I, I like to have time to myself to recharge. Like fives 
need it. They don't just want that. It's not sometimes, it's every day. And sometimes they can actually find a way to sort of do that while they're in the presence of others. So there's a way to kind of disconnect a little, put that buffer, kind of go into your head and and kind of get that alone time when you're actually in the presence of others. And so that can lead to some of that myth about aloof. Yeah. And some of the challenges with the five, I feel like I haven't figured out yet. So with this five subtype, if I am this subtype, then I have not like worked through my stuff yet. (laughs) This other subtype that I think I might be, the challenge is there. I feel like I've done well with. I've I've worked out. It will help us to talk about the other one. And I can tell you why this concept of a wing. Wing is sort of another type on the circle. It has to be one that's next to your home base or core type. So, you know, on one side or the other. And that's one where you have just a little natural ability to maybe access more of that type and especially the better the the strengths of that type. Because you mentioned that the other type that you felt like, you know, could be right was a type four. If five is really feeling strongly like your home base, your core, it wouldn't be surprising if you have a four wing or even a very strong four wing. We might have neither of the wings. We might have both of them or we might just have one. Some are stronger than others, but you might have a fairly strong four wing if you're a five. And that would mean that some of those things about type four would resonate with you. Okay. Or the other way around, I might be a four and the five might be my wing. My other type that I think I might be is a four, which is the individualist, which is in the heart center. Fours are motivated by being and feeling connected to be and be seen as unique, authentic, and special. They avoid being misunderstood, being abandoned, and sort of avoiding the ordinary. They like the extraordinary. Fours, they are very emotionally empathic. They can really sense what's going on with the emotions of others, maybe even if it's below the surface, kind of be intuitive in that way. They have a very keen aesthetic sense of what looks good to them and what's beautiful. Sometimes this type is also called the artist, not just the individualist. Fords have the ability to be truth tellers. They're courageous in that way. That can show up as speaking truth to power, or it could be an inconvenient truth, the elephant in the room, something that nobody else wants to say. Um, So those are some of the strengths of the four. Some of the pitfalls can be harder to see the positive and even to own their own positive qualities. Fours have a tendency to compare and especially comparing themselves to others. Sometimes that leads to sort of comparing in the negative and feeling less than or not as good at on on certain dimensions as others. Sometimes dwelling in negative emotions. Fours really feel their emotions very intensely, very deeply. They're connected to their feelings. Sometimes this is reported as they're closer to the surface than maybe that feels for other types and they feel those emotions. So that can lead to a little bit of emotional volatility, high highs, low lows. Some of the myths there can be that fours are only emotional. That is a myth. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that I relate to definitely the feeling misunderstood, feeling like empath and comparing. Those are all things that I do. I haven't been a hugely emotional person until the last few years. I've been getting better at that. I've been getting better at feeling my emotions. So that's the part that I'm not so sure about things that I've read about the individualists as they've often described as moody. I don't know if that's a a myth, but that's just not something that I consider myself to be as moody. So that's the part that I'm not so sure about. 
So I don't know. What what do you think? From seeing and hearing you respond to the two types, I thought that I experienced you having a more close connection to the type five. When you're deciding between two types, really look at the motivations, comparing that need for knowledge and data and competency versus on the four side, right? This idea of being and feeling connected, being seen as and being unique and authentic and to avoid being sort of misunderstood. Yeah, I go back and forth. There's these subtypes, right? So each of these has three subtypes. And when I read the subtype self-preservation for the for the individualist, I was like, that is exactly me. Like, I was like, that's definitely it. When I read the subtype for the five, it was like, yeah, that's pretty close to me. So sometimes I think it's the individualist. But when you're talking about the needs, like the individualist is creative. And yes, I'm creative, but I don't feel like I need to be creative. Like, I feel like sometimes I wish I wasn't so creative. It's like gets in the way sometimes of my investigator, right? The needs with the five feels more intense. I feel like what's going on with the five, I haven't worked out yet. This tug and pull of like needing space, but also needing to be with other people. Like I haven't figured that out yet. Like I go back and forth. So I don't know, maybe maybe I am more of the five because that's where I'm, I struggle more and it seems more intense. And I really value your opinion because we can let the listeners know that Melanie Haskell is actually my little sister. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So she definitely could help me out. Originally, she she mentioned the individualist, which I can definitely see that. Uh, well, thank you so much for walking me through this process. And I know this process is so helpful. And I know you've used it in your executive management with your staff. And I'm so curious how you did that, how the staff opened up to it and used it and, and to their benefit. I feel so lucky to have been introduced to the Enneagram at a prior organization that I worked at. It was a tool that was used organization-wide. We had access to one of the most amazing Enneagram teachers and coaches and facilitators named Kaylee Warner-Klemp, who is now a dear friend, um, and she's an amazing resource used it as a daily part of how we interacted with one another. The reason why I'm so passionate about the Enneagram and why I love it so much is because I feel like it's so useful on two fronts. One is a self-exploration and understanding tool. I, I gained so much self-awareness. Things made sense. Things that I thought about my personality my whole life that were sort of different and maybe made me this unique thing, right? All tied together and made sense under the themes of my Enneagram type. And the more I learned and the more I read and the more I interacted on it, just that the more I felt like I could understand myself and be able to articulate that to others, to share more about myself, to, to give some of that vulnerability and information to others who were working closely with me or in relationships with me in my personal life. And so I find it as a really valuable um, self-exploration and development tool. But additionally, as an interpersonal tool, it can be so incredibly valuable to understand one another's types and to be able to understand, right, where are we coming from? What's motivating us? How might we be likely to respond? And how can we adapt ourselves to bring out the best in each other, to give each other the space to around those preferences and needs with our personalities and really the empathy and understanding. Each type is amazing, has its own awesome qualities. How can we bring that out more in each other and not be stuck in our own personalities? I find it as an incredibly valuable tool. I've gone on to use it with many teams and coach on it with others. It is a passion of mine that I love. Can you share an example of when you help 
people understand their Enneagram and then how that helped them better collaborate, interpersonal relations at work? One example is I had a type eight being managed by a type nine. So a type eight being the challenger, a type nine being the peacemaker. And there's a lot of different motivations there. A nine is more motivated by harmony and peace and finding that common ground and solution. And an eight is more motivated by strength and and power and directness and sort of fighting for what is right. So I had the the eight, who was the person being managed by the nine, come to me and express frustration with their boss. You know, we're working with this other team. They are breaking the rules, the guidelines. We have these processes, SOPs in place. They're not following them. And my boss doesn't call them out in the meeting. She's not telling them, you guys aren't following this. This is the right way that we've agreed to do it. You're not honoring this agreement. And I was able to coach her on this and said, you know, Your boss is a nine, the peacemaker, harmony. Nines are not going to go ahead and call anyone out and create conflict, right? They're Mm -hmm. they're conflict avoidant, not not necessarily out of fear, but that's just, they're creating harmony. So to, to just in a public setting, go straight to a very direct calling you out, that's not going to work for them. Now, I bet if you went and asked your boss, how are you addressing this? Is this, do you view this as a problem and how are you addressing it? I bet she would say, oh, absolutely. And I've actually gone one-on-one and had a conversation. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to bring the group together and create this harmony and re-establish the agreement and all of these things. So that was very illuminating, I would say, for the eight, the challenger whose bias is to be very direct, not wanting and seeking out conflict, but very comfortable with conflict when it needs to happen versus a nine who goes about that a little bit differently. And And I can see how that would be really frustrating for a challenger to, you know, why isn't it just out in the open? Why aren't we doing things the way things should be? We should be doing them. Knowing for me, the the Enneagram types that are going to be in the room for a specific collaboration or meeting or brainstorm, and how do we draw those out? So there are certain types that are more intense, more direct, more forceful, more likely to give their opinion. Other types that are a little more likely to need that time to process, to hang back, maybe even some that might not want to add another opinion into the mix, like a nine, because they're seeing some themes develop among the group and it's another variable. So things that I might do is making sure that I give some of the topics and discussion questions in writing well in advance of a meeting for those types that aren't in the moment processors and who need a little bit more of that time to come forward. I might make space for a type nine, for example, to show their opinion, to provide their opinion first, rather than waiting till everyone's already gone, they're likely to wait to the end and then sort of take their own opinion out. I might create other dynamics in a group situation in order to draw all the types, make space for all the types and sort of bring out our best as a group. All bosses, all managers should should do this. Uh, So tell me about your coaching. I started out um, being coached. And so that was my introduction to, you know, how to not only use this tool, but how another coach could really help me on my journey with this. I went deep and became passionate about, learned a lot, and and again, started coaching others. So it started with people on my team or peers where they would come to me and I would have these sort of informal coaching sessions. And it really grew from there. And so then I started doing some of these Enneagram workshops to teach people about the tool and to help them find their type, and also on an individual one-on-one level um, as a coach. So those, you know, it kind of started with me as a learner and a coachee and has developed from there. So if someone's thinking about working with you, who might be a good candidate to, to work with you? 
anyone who wants to use a tool like this to, to dive deeper into themselves, more self-awareness, more self-exploration and development, as well as focusing on the interpersonal dynamics, a lot of it gets into leadership coaching and how to bring out the best in yourself and in your team and how to, again, make space for all the types and have that self-awareness to know how to proactively share your vulnerability and explain to others how best to work with you as well as to make that effort to how best to work with others. So I would say mostly executive leaders in various business fields, but really anyone who wants to dive deeper on the tools and use them in that. How would they get a hold of you? I think the best way would be to contact you and you can put them in touch. Okay. Well, Melanie, it was so wonderful having you here on this podcast. I know the last several months we've been talking about having you be a guest on the show. And I just so enjoyed our conversation. And I just am so amazed how this Enneagram, these concepts, how they can be so helpful for those of us who are interested in mindfulness, those of us who are practicing mindfulness. Like you said, it is it could be so helpful for self-awareness and understanding what some of those deep down driving forces are and things to become aware of, right? That's mindfulness. What can we become aware of? You know, if I am a type five, I can become aware of this need to go and spend alone time so I don't feel drained. I definitely encourage anyone who is interested in self-awareness to, to learn about Enneagram. Thank you so much, Sarah. The Aware Mind Podcast is a TSD mindfulness production. Please check out our show notes for upcoming events and links to additional resources. Please visit our website at tsdmind.org. That is T as in tame, S as in soothe, D as in dwell, mind as in mindfulness.org. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at tsd underscore mindfulness. 